You know what? It, it looks like we called everybody to dinner this morning and they all came running. What a great turnout tonight. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the book of beginnings. We get the book's name from the first word in the Hebrew text, which is beginnings. The Greek word that's translated beginnings is the word genesios, or Genesis. Everything begins in Genesis. The universe, the solar system, the earth's hydrosphere and atmosphere, life, humanity, marriage, evil, language, government, culture, God's people Israel, even God's plan of salvation begins in Genesis. Every major Bible doctrine has its roots in this first book. The book of Genesis is truly the foundation on which the other 65 books of the Bible are erected. And that's why the enemies of God have tried so vigorously down through the centuries to attack the credibility of the book of Genesis. And yet to no avail. For the more we learn of verifiable science and of ancient history and of archaeology, the more confidence we gain in the Genesis account. Never forget, no less of an authority than our own Lord Jesus quoted Genesis. He attributed it to Moses. Jesus considered Genesis to be historically accurate and scientifically reliable. And if our Lord Jesus held to a literal interpretation of Genesis, then I suggest we should too. The Bible begins, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's amazing that the most ancient and explosive and far-reaching moment in the history of the universe here gets covered in one short, concise, sweeping statement. Isn't it amazing? Just ten words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here are ten words, though, as rich and as pregnant with meaning as any other ten words that have ever been written. One verse answers all of life's big questions. The who, the what, the when, the where. Who are we? We're God's creation. What's our purpose? A creation is supposed to bring pleasure to its creator. When did it occur? <laughs> In the beginning. And where are we going? Since God created us, we can assume that He has a plan for us. Henry Morris points out from this one verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that it refutes all of the world's false religions. Atheism, because the universe was created by God. Pantheism. For God is separate from what He created. Polytheism, for only one God created all things. Materialism, for matter had a beginning. Humanism, since it was God and not man who is the ultimate reality. And evolutionism, because God created all things. Again, verse 1 tells us, In the beginning, God. Notice there's no date. Just in the beginning. How old is the universe? 20 billion years? 10 billion years? 10,000 years? We can really only venture our theories. We don't really know. 
The only person present at the time was God. And he's chosen not to tell us. Apparently, it's not something we really know, need to know anyway. All we know is that when the curtain swings open and the light of revelation hits the stage for the first time, there is God. Before anything else existed, there was God. Genesis chapter 1 doesn't say, in the beginning of God. It says, in the beginning, God. The Bible tells us that God is eternal. That He had no beginning and that He has no end. King David sings out in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 36, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. God has always been and He will always be. It's interesting also to note the word God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. Understand, in the Old Testament, there are three Hebrew words that are used for God. First is the name Jehovah. That speaks of His faithfulness toward His people. We talked about Jehovah this morning. Second is the name Adonai, which means Lord. It speaks of His sovereignty, His rule over all of life. But third is the name El, which speaks of God's raw, awesome, majestic power. Elohim is a way of referring to God as the Almighty, as the Omnipotent. Verse 1, in essence, is a picture of God with His shirt sleeves rolled up. God with His muscles bulging. But here's an important innuendo. The name used in verse 1, Elohim, is the plural form of the word El. You see, God is one God, but He does exist in a plurality. He exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get this from the very first use of the word God in the Scriptures. The triune nature of God will show up again in verse 26 when God creates man. There He'll say to Himself, let us make man in our image. Notice those plural pronouns, us and our. The Trinity is at work in creation. It reminds us of how John opens up his gospel. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, a name that he uses for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. John lets us know that Jesus was also involved in the creation. Just 80 years ago, the prevailing consensus among scientists was that matter and the universe were eternal. That matter that the universe had no beginning, it had no creation. This assertion squared nicely with all of the world's religions except Judaism and Christianity. Today, though, it's interesting that the consensus has changed radically. Very few scientists today would suggest any longer that matter is eternal. Instead, today's scientists all speak of the day of creation. Scientists now believe that the universe is both expanding and decelerating, meaning that it once had a beginning. Today, the prevailing hypothesis for the origin of the universe among secular scientists is the Big Bang. It theorizes that around 20 billion years ago, a hydrogen gas cloud exploded. And from that explosion, evolved the galaxies and the solar systems and the planets. 
Of course, the major problem with the Big Bang is where did the original hydrogen come from? And how did a random explosion produce orderly systems? It's interesting, one version of the Big Bang is called the inflationary Big Bang. And it suggests that the universe organized and matured very early. Almost in its first few moments of existence, there was this initial infusion of energy, this bang, followed by almost immediate development. <laughs> now you think through that for a minute. That sounds a whole lot more like Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 than it does Carl Sagan. It's humorous to me that many of today's evolutionary scientists, without wanting to admit it, are moving closer and closer toward the biblical account of creation. In his book, God and the Astronomers, NASA cosmologist Dr. Robert Jastrow, he makes this concession. He says, it is not a matter of another year, another decade of work, another measurement, or another theory. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. And he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> And while we're talking about the Bible's scientific sophistication and accuracy, I hope you realize that the Bible is always way ahead of the scientist and the astronomer. Centuries ago, while man's brightest minds assumed that the earth was flat, Isaiah in 700 B.C., Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22, spoke of the circle of the earth. Nearly 3,500 years ago, Job chapter 26 verse 7 says that God hangs the earth on nothing. That's a thoroughly modern scientific observation. The human author of the book of Genesis was Moses. And you remember, Moses was raised in Egypt's finest schools. And yet the Egyptians believed that the earth was formed when an egg appeared in the cosmic sea and hatched into the sun god. The Greeks at the time believed that the earth was held up in the arms of a giant named Atlas. Hinduism taught that the earth sat on the back of three elephants who stood on a tortoise while that tortoise swam around in the cosmic sea. Hey, these were the prevailing notions of the day. Yet Moses pens words here that even modern minds consider to be sophisticated and brilliant. How did Moses compose such an accurate statement? Obviously, the Creator Himself told him what to write. Let me say that if you can believe in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you'll have no problem believing the other 31,173 verses in your Bible. For think about it. If God created the universe and set its laws in motion, then He can intervene or interrupt those laws if He so chooses. In other words, if God created all things, parting the Red Sea is no problem or causing the sun to stand still, or multiplying five loaves and two fish, or even rising from the dead. Those things are really no problem at all if He created the heavens and the earth. In fact, if God created the universe, think about it. The problems you're facing tonight are no challenge for Him either. 
Hey, if he can create the universe, he can fix a cracked marriage. He can corral a rebellious teenager. He can heal a sickness, even a cancer. He can find you a job. He can give you strength for a struggle. Bible teacher Dan DeHaan, he says it best. The Christian has learned to believe in one big, bold miracle, God. And everything else falls into place. An atheist denies God and must have a miracle for every other created thing. <laughs> Verse 1 tells us, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word translated created is the Hebrew word bara, which means to create out of nothing. Here is the first cause. Here is the prime mover. God begins with no raw materials, and he fashions the heavens and the earth with nothing but his word. There is another Hebrew word that can be translated create. It's the word asa. And when you hear it, think of the word that sounds like it, assemble. If we were to borrow this podium, that means it would suddenly pop into existence out of thin air. But if we were to asa this podium, it would mean that we would go down to Home Depot and that we would buy a few boards and a box of nails and some varnish and we would come back and we would put it all together. And here is where the plot thickens. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, we're told that in six days... The Lord made, and there the word is assad, assembled, the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the universe is created bara, from nothing. In Exodus 31, we're told that it was made out of existing materials. Which is it? Well, it's both. Verse 2 tells us, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Now, this is not the scene that we would expect. In chapter 1, each aspect of God's creation is considered good. In verse 31, he summarizes all of his creation, and he says, it was very good. But here, this is not good. The earth is without form and void. It's unformed. It's unfilled. The Hebrew phrase is tohu wabohu. The terminology usually describes the aftermath of some cataclysmic judgment. In verse 2, the earth here is shapeless. It's an empty mess. It's without form and void. It's just a vast sea shrouded with darkness. Reminds me of a joke I heard yesterday at the men's retreat. A doctor, an engineer, and a lawyer... Well, are all arguing over whose profession should be considered the oldest. The doctor noted that God had performed surgery on Adam when he created Eve, that he'd opened up to Adam's side, proving that the medical profession had to be the oldest profession. Well, the engineer, though, he, he said, wait a minute. He said, think back before that surgery on Adam. Hey, God created the heavens and the earth. He started with chaos and confusion, and in six days he constructed the universe. Certainly, engineering is the oldest profession. But that's when the lawyer jumped in and he said, where do you think that chaos and confusion came from? <laughs> Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 casts a light on verse 2. Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, catch this, 
who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. Isaiah says the earth was not created in vain or in tohu. The same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. In other words, Genesis says that the earth was created tohu or unformed. Just this chaos and confusion. Whereas Isaiah says that it was not. It was formed and it was inhabitable. Well, which is it? I believe it's both. Some scholars believe that there was a gap of time between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 when the heavens and earth were originally created and then created out of bara or out of nothing. And then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, something happens between them that creates this chaos and confusion. And then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, God then takes the raw materials that were created originally and he reshapes them and reforms them into the heavens and earth as we know it. Think about this. When were the angels created? Well, Genesis doesn't tell us. But Job chapter 38 asks this question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together, uh, morning stars being an expression for the angels, and all the sons of God, another angelic uh, idiom, shouted for joy. The implication is, is that the angels were created before God goes to work on the earth in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. We also know that one of the angels sinned. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12, all combined to describe Lucifer's fall and how that he took a third of the angels with him. They joined in his revolt. Jesus commented in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It could be that Satan's fall brought about a horrible judgment that damaged God's original creation. Some scholars believe that God created a beautiful earth, an earth that was formed and filled, but Lu and he put Lucifer in charge of that earth. But then this angelic rebellion took place, and it brought with it cataclysmic judgments on the pre-Adamic world. And thus, verse 2 is essentially the recreating or the reassembling of the earth. There is a Hebrew tradition which explains why Satan fell. Apparently, he got wind of God's plan to create man and to give him dominion over the earth. Lucifer was proud. No way did he want to serve these little dust balls. That's what we are. We're made out of the dirt. No way did Satan want to serve these little dust balls. And so he revolted and he tried to thwart God's plan. He first appears in the sea opposing creation. Job chapter 26 speaks of creation in an unexpected way. Catch what Job says. He hangs the earth on nothing. This is creation. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And who is the serpent in the scriptures? None other than Satan. We don't usually think of creation this way, but creation was a battle. It was the first skirmish in a long-running war. Satan, this serpent, will appear again in chapter 3, won't he? To tempt Adam and Eve. 
Apparently, if Satan can't stop creation, he'll try to spoil it. We see him over and over again in Psalm 74. We see the sea serpent in the waters of the Red Sea when Moses is trying to bring the children of Israel through. The serpent is opposing the exodus. In Revelation 12, there is a dragon that appears at the end of the age and attacks Israel. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, the Antichrist, that diabolical figure at, who's going to rise up in the last days, he appears as a beast rising out of the sea, similar to the picture we have here in verse 2, a, a sea, a mass of chaotic waters, you know, and a storm brewing over it. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is the story of a battle. Well, verse 2 tells us, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God breaks through this darkness, this chaos, and this confusion. And He says, Let there be light. And suddenly, there was light. In the Hebrew it reads, God said, Light be. And light was. In verse 1, God creates a beautiful universe that's apparently destroyed by Satan's revolt. And now in verse 2, he starts over. He reforms and refills this earth. And God does it by the power of His Word. Light doesn't develop over long eons of time. God speaks it, and it appears instantly. In his book, Genesis and the Big Bang, Author Gerald Schroeder theorizes that the term waters in verse 2 could refer to plasmas, a kind of pre-molecular soup. And he theorizes that the Spirit of God energized and organized all of these subatomic particles that were spinning around in this confusion and chaos. Schroeder writes, With the binding of electrons in atomic orbits, the photons were free to travel. They burst forth bathing the universe with light. These plasmas are what give off the ultraviolet light that are needed for the plants to grow in day three, even though the sun doesn't appear in day four. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Light is one of the great mysteries in the universe. No one really knows what it is. At times it acts like a wave. At other times it acts like a particle. Light can penetrate another substance without altering it or marring it. That's a spiritual light quality. The Bible says that God is light. That light seems to be the unveiling of the glory of God. Psalm chapter 104 verse 2 states that God covers Himself with light as with a garment. And don't get confused with the existence of light before the creation of the sun. Revelation 22, verse 5, we go to the end of time, and there it states that there is no sun in heaven. Revelation says they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. God is the ultimate power plant. Before the sun, there was God. After the sun passes away, there will be God again, giving off the light. Verse 4, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. It's interesting, the Jews, even to this day, start their day at 6 o'clock in the evening. They start with the evening and then go to the morning. Unlike us, who start in the morning and go to the evening. 
You see, a secular day ends with nightfall. A biblical day, though, ends with sunlight. I think God meant for it to be that way because he wants to remind his kids that no matter how dark things get, at the end of the day, the sun will still shine. Verse 6 tells us, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, or the sky, the atmosphere, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. On day two, God separates the water covering the earth's surface from the water that's suspended above the earth, in the atmosphere. In other words, He establishes a hydrosphere and an atmosphere. Those of us who live in Georgia, we know humidity. We know humidity. We realize that the atmosphere is saturated with water vapor. But did you realize the amount of water vapor that is suspended in the atmosphere? It's staggering. Try this number on for size. 54 trillion, 460 billion tons of water hang in thin air over our planet. Can you imagine? Our hydrologic cycle is an amazing feat of God's engineering. It's amazing. And the amount of water vapor that He separates from below the firmament and above the firmament may have actually been heavier before the time of Noah than it is today. It's believed that one of the causes of Noah's flood was not just that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but that this giant vapor canopy that was even much thicker than it is today collapsed, and that's what flooded the earth. That being the case, prior to the flood of Noah, the earth was surrounded by this heavy vapor atmosphere that created tropical climates all over the earth. We'll talk about that later. Verse 8 ends day 2. And God called the firmament heaven, and so the evening and the morning were the second day. Now remember, there are three heavens in the Bible. The earth's atmosphere is heaven number one. That's what's mentioned here. Outer space sometimes gets talked about as heaven. That's heaven number two. And you remember God's throne. God's throne room is called by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as the third heaven. It's interesting that all six days of creation, after them, God said that it was good except for one day. Remember what it was? Well, we just read it. It was the second day. It was the one day that God didn't say it was good. And the question follows, why? It could be that God knew, He obviously knew, but it could be the reason He didn't say the second day was good, was because He knew that that vapor canopy that He had created was very soon going to be used to judge the world. Perhaps that brought sorrow to His heart. He also knew, He just created the atmosphere. He also knew that later Satan would become what? the prince of the power of the air, the Bible calls him, or the atmosphere. There's another possible reason why he doesn't say the second day is good that we'll get to later if we have time. Verse 9 records day 3. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God corrals the seas and He produces dry land. Now remember on day one, God separates light from dark. 
On day two, he separates the waters from under the firmament from the waters above the firmament, the hydrosphere and the atmosphere. Now on day three, he separates the sea and the land. In other words, God establishes boundaries. All throughout this first chapter, he's establishing boundaries. And when he does, he says that it was good. I think we need to remind ourselves that boundaries are a good thing. Without them, life would be dangerous, wouldn't it? It would be chaotic for sure. Boundaries bring order to our lives. Boundaries are safety nets for our lives. Hey, don't resent the boundaries that God has placed around your life. They're there for your good. Verse 11 tells us, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The grasses, the herbs, the trees, they didn't evolve. Everything was created according to its kind. And so the evening and the morning were the third day. I believe that the third day marked a decisive victory in this battle between God and Satan over creation. Think about it. Satan would have fought vigorously against God over the emergence of this dry ground. And why? Well, if the earth was covered with water, there would be no dirt for God to be able to create man. And so he wanted to keep the earth shrouded in water. And with the emergence of the land, with the emergence of the, the dry dirt, God was able to go further with his plans of creating you and me. It must have been a tremendous battle during the third day, and yet God won the victory. It, it's interesting. It reminds us of a day, a third day, thousands of years later, when another decisive victory was won on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, the Bible calls him to the first fruits of our resurrection. Again, life appeared on the third day. It's amazing how the, the creation story has all kinds of level of meaning to it. It even speaks of our redemption and our salvation today. Verse 14 tells us, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. On day one, God unveiled and released this light. The photons bathed the universe with light. On day four, He now harnesses that light and concentrates them in the sun and in the stars. We're told then God made two great lights. Of course, they were the sun and the moon. The greater light, the sun, to rule the day. And the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. It's interesting, the ancients had it reversed. Because of their apparent size in the sky, they thought the moon was the greater light. And the sun was the lesser. The Bible, though, had it right all along. Verse 16 says, He made the stars also. Modern astronomy tells us that there are about 100 billion trillion stars and 100 trillion galaxies. 
And there are probably just about that many books offering an explanation as to their formation. Here is a subject of intense human interest, the formation of the stars. And yet the Bible gives it just a five-word explanation. He made the stars also. <laughs> Wouldn't you have liked more information? <laughs> God, tell us a little bit more about the stars. But it just goes to prove that our priorities are not God's priorities, are they? The Bible gives five little words to the formation of the stars, whereas it devotes 50 chapters to the discussion of the tabernacle, the place where God met with His people Israel. You know, we're preoccupied with things like creation, whereas God is far more concerned with redemption, with the recreation He wants to work in our hearts. Well, verse 17 says, God set them, the sun, the moon, the stars, in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Notice back in verse 17. God sets the stars in the firmament. In other words, He gives them their orbits. And then He tells us in verse 14 that they'll be for signs and for seasons. Now, we know about the seasons, but what about the signs? The stars, the sun and the moon in the sky, in their orbits as signs. There is a theory that before it was corrupted by Satan, the zodiac actually preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us, God counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Isn't that interesting? Adam named the animals, but God has named the stars. The zodiac, of course, is the path that the earth travels through the stars. Today, it begins with Aries. But originally, the zodiac began with Virgo. And isn't it interesting that the gospel begins when a virgin conceives and brings forth a child? Jesus came the first time through a virgin. But Revelation tells us that when He comes the second time, He'll be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He'll come as a lion. And isn't it interesting that the last, on the ancient zodiac, the last sign was Leo the lion. It began with Virgo. It ends with Leo. Jesus comes the first time through a virgin. He'll come the second time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's a very interesting study to look at how the, the Zodiac may have at one time preached the gospel. Don't misunderstand. Satan has definitely corrupted the Zodiac today. And the Bible forbids us from consulting the stars in any manner. But originally the stars were put there, God says, as signs. Let me make one more point about the creation of the stars. One reason astronomers assume that the universe is, oh, 15, 20 billion, it always changes, by the way, but 15, 20 billion years old, is the distance between the earth and the stars. There are stars millions of light years away. A light year is the distance that light travels in a year. If we see a star 4 billion light years away, then the earth needs to be at least 4 billion years old, or so they say. But let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever thrown a roll of toilet paper? 
Now, this is where you got to dig back in your past, back in those high school days, and you got to be honest. How many of you have ever thrown a roll of toilet paper? Yep, I have. I got to admit it, I have. Most of you have, if you'll be honest. Think of it this way. God may have hurled the stars into their orbits as if he were unrolling the light, as if he were throwing a roll of toilet paper. Starlight could have been created in transit, either before or as the star itself was created. If that were the case, it would really change a lot of these measuring sticks that we use. There are other possibilities that also preclude an old earth. How do we know that the speed of light travels at the same rate throughout the universe? There may be warps out there in space somewhere where the speed of light dramatically accelerates. And how do we know that the speed of light has been consistent over time? There's an Australian scientist by the name of Barry Setterfield who's done some amazing research that suggests that the speed of light may have decayed over time. He contends that light traveled four times faster in the days of Abraham than it does today. You see, I'm just saying there's a whole lot that we don't know. You see, the reason men are so quick to believe in evolution is it allows them an excuse. If you admit there's a God, a higher authority, you've got to submit to Him. There's somebody you're accountable to. And so if you can eliminate God from the equation, you can do as you please. It's more a moral issue than it is a scientific one. There's evidence out there to support the existence of God, certainly. Verse 20, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. God has formed the earth. Now He begins to fill the earth with life. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. God fills the sky with birds. He fills the, fish, the seas with fish. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. On day six, God creates the creepy crawlers the insects, and the land animals. Verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created according to its kind. It's true that God created in life's genetic makeup a degree of flexibility. Living things can adapt to their environment. These adaptations are called mutations. But there are limits to these adaptations. The genetic structure of living things is fixed. It's been fixed by God so that life produces only within its natural family or its kinds. In other words, mutations are possible, certainly, but not transmutations. 
Things adapt to their environment, but things don't change out of their kind and out of their family to another kind or to another family. A fish doesn't become a bird. Mutations, yes. Transmutations, no. Thank the Lord for mutations. All my kids have turned out better looking than me. I'm thankful for mutations. But they're still Adamses. Granted, at times they act like monkeys, but they're still Adamses. And they're going to reproduce Adamses themselves, every generation, according to its kind. You see, this is the great failure of evolution. With all the fossils that have been found, there's a glaring absence of transitional forms. In other words, the missing link is still missing. It's because it's not there. God created everything after its kind. In just six days, God reassembles the earth and He makes it fit for His crowning creation, man. Which brings up an interesting question. Were the six days of creation literal 24-hour days? Or were they long periods of time or ages? Well, the Hebrew word for day or yom appears 1,425 times in the Old Testament. And it gets translated 51 different ways. So from the word yom, we can't really be dogmatic. But if you take these days as long geological ages of millions of years, you've got problems. For example, plants are created on the third day. That requires the pollination of insects to survive. But the insects don't appear until day five. If the two days are separated by millions of of years, these kinds of plants could have never survived. I personally believe that the language suggests six 24-hour periods of time. To me, the phrase, the evening and the morning, support that. Here's another question. How long ago did these six days occur? Was it four and a half billion years ago? And again, no one knows. The only person that was there at the time was God. And he's chosen not to date it. The age of the earth depends on how long of a time gap exists between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Was it hours? Or was it billions of years? It's possible that the universe is quite old. But the reassembling of the earth and the creation of mankind is a recent event. Recorded human history and the Bible's genealogies can only track back maybe 6,000, perhaps 10,000 years. Actually, I believe that there are scientific reasons to believe in a very young earth. An earth that is even as young as 10,000 years old. If the speed of light has decayed over time, then it would throw off all of the atomic clocks and the radioactive dating techniques that we hold so dear. Carbon-14 and its companions have their problems anyway. There are varying decay rates among these compositions. There are assumptions about initial compositions and seepage possibilities all can contaminate results. All of these things have their problems, especially when it comes to trying to date very old ages. Other factors, though, point to a young earth. The decay of the earth's magnetic field, the mineral composition of the oceans, the existence of of short-period comets all also support the idea of a young earth. It's interesting, when Bob Hope interviewed Neil Armstrong, he asked the first moonwalker, before your historic mission, what was your greatest fear? 
Armstrong said that the astronauts had been warned that there would be a huge layer of loosely compacted debris on the moon's surface. Scientists assumed that after billions of years and no protective atmosphere, the moon would have been quite a dusty place. And this is why the NASA lunar module, you remember it in your mind, it had those long legs with the pads at the end, but they had those long legs off the capsule that set it up very high, and there was a ladder they had to climb up to. Scientists assumed that after these billions of years, there would be this dust that had accumulated on the moon. And they feared that the lunar module would sink when it hit the ground, and so they put it up on stilts. Instead, though, there was so little dust that Armstrong had difficulty hammering the American flag into the hard surface. The moon was covered not with billions of years of dust, or even millions, but just a few thousand years of cosmic dust. There's another point to consider. How old did Adam look the day after his creation? He was one day old, but he was the perfect human specimen. He probably had the body of a 46-year-old, I suppose, you know. He, you know, he was created in maturity. Remember the trees in the Garden of Eden? They also appeared in mature form. They were created with fruit on their branches. No doubt God created eggs with yolks. The trees in the Garden of Eden probably had annular rings. Question always comes up, did Adam have a belly button? If he did, it was the example, an example of the appearance of age. And where there appears to be physical evidence for lengthy ages or for billions of years, it's possible that it's the result of God creating the earth in a state of maturity. Well, in verse 26, the stage is set for the capstone of creation. Earth systems have been reformed and refilled to support human life. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All of life was created according to its kind. The offspring reflects the parent. But God goes one step further with humanity. We alone are made in God's image. We not only reflect the image of our earthly father, but we also resemble our heavenly father. This makes us unique. Humanity is made in the image of God, and it's true in numerous ways. Spiritually, we're a spiritual being, just as God is. We're a moral being. We're rational beings. We're creative beings, just as God is creative. Both God and man are relational. We enjoy fellowship. Both are self-determining. We make our own choices. But I think, first and foremost, humans were made in God's image in that we were made to rule. In verses 28 and 29, God tells the man and the woman and every human thereafter, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, 
which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. God spent six days reforming and refilling the earth to support the creature that he loved most and that he made in his image. Earth was made for man. What I'm about to say is not very politically correct today, especially not in environmental circles. But the flora and the fauna, the fish and the fowl, they were all made, guys, for our survival and for our enjoyment. We shouldn't abuse nature, certainly. But nature is ours to use for the good of mankind. You see, man was given dominion over the earth. We were given authority to rule over creation, to subdue the creation to our benefit. And this understanding is the difference between Western civilization and Eastern civilization. The West, where we live, reared on the Judeo-Christian ethic. We've seen advances through science. We've seen technology expand. We've learned to harness nature for our own benefit. And why? Because the Bible teaches that man is separate from nature. And it's our job, our God-given duty, to subdue nature and to use it for our benefit. That's why we live in such a prosperous you know, place where we have so many conveniences at our fingertips. Whereas, in the East, it's dominated by pantheism. The belief that man is part of nature, that man is one with nature, and rather than subdue nature, the role of man is to harmonize with his surroundings. And this ultimately is why cows roam freely in India and eat the crops while the people die of starvation. Hinduism teaches its adherents to deify nature rather than to subdue it. It's a society's religion that either holds it back or motivates its development. Be thankful you were born in a nation that's based on Jewish and Christian and biblical thought. Verse 30 tells us also, To every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. There you have it. In six days, God reformed and refilled planet Earth, placed the object of his affections on its throne, and on the seventh day, he rested. But as we'll find out in chapter 2, the plot thickens. Next Sunday night, let me encourage you to read Genesis chapters 2 and 3 next Sunday night as we continue our way through the Bible.